visit is more costly than a visit from a king. Many of you are receiving visitors, family members from out of town over the next week or so. Some of you are here visiting from out of town. Welcome, we're glad you're here. Think about somebody visiting from out of town. The most costly out-of-town visitor imaginable is typically a king. For example, last year, King Charles and Queen Camilla visited Canada, and they traveled with a 53-person entourage, including private secretaries, butlers, not butler, butlers, dressers, not the thing that you put your clothes in, people that help you get dressed, stylists, and security. Uh, Royals typically travel with thousands of pounds of luggage, including multiple outfits for every day, priceless jewelry, and expensive gifts to give to dignitaries and much more. And and don't forget the the lavish parties, the luxurious lodging, the finest food and drink that awaits royals at their destination. So last year, when King Charles and Queen Camilla visited Canada, their three-day visit cost Canadian taxpayers $2 million three days. Like I said, visit from a king is pretty costly. Think about the contrast between that king and the king of kings. It's utterly shocking. Jesus, the king of kings, came to this earth with no earthly entourage. There were heavenly angels, shepherds that came, but they're shepherds. Wise men come eventually, but he doesn't come with a 53-person entourage. He comes by himself as a baby born in a stable, lying in a manger. Jesus brought no luggage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And he was welcomed not into luxurious lodgings, but was laid in a manger. And yet, despite his humble visit to Bethlehem, the king of kings is worth more and deserving of greater celebration than the entire house of Windsor put together. He's glorious. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. I want to show you that show you why Jesus is such a glorious king from our text in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. Just a little bit of context of what's going on in this part of God's word. It's about 740 B.C. It's about 750 years, give or take, before when Jesus was born. And there's a prophet named Isaiah who is preaching God's word to God's people. And, And things are not particularly going well for the people of God in this time. 300 years before Isaiah, God promised his people, he promised to to the king David that he would one day send a forever king to rule his people in justice and peace. And yet, hundreds of years later, they're still waiting. King David was not the forever king. He failed greatly. King Solomon, his son, was not the forever king. He he, he worshiped false gods. King Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was a fool who split the kingdom. And seven generations after King Rehoboam, a king named Uzziah, who was king when Isaiah first became a prophet, he went into the temple and tried to perform the sacrifice of a priest, and he was struck with leprosy. 
and lived his final years in isolation before he died. So things are not going well for the people of God. They are living in a period of great darkness. And yet, God has not forgotten his people. Look at verse 2 in Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. The future that Isaiah sees is so certain, he speaks of it as if it's already happened. What's the joy that Isaiah is pointing to? What's the light that's shining in the darkness? A king is coming to the people of God. The big idea that I want to show you from today's text is that that Jesus is the ultimate king who rules with justice and peace. Jesus is the ultimate king who rules with justice and peace. So with God's help, we're going to ask and answer three questions about that big idea from our text this morning. Really simple questions. What is a king? How is Jesus the ultimate king? And what difference should this make? So we're going to dive right in. Question number one, what is a king? What is a king? If you've been with us the past few weeks as we studied uh, the threefold office of Jesus, you know that prophets... They were the ones who spoke the word of God. Priests were the one who sacrificed for the people of God. And kings were those who ruled over God's people. So so the simple answer to our first question is that a king is a man who rules over the people. Okay? Some kings rule really well. Some kings rule really badly. But there's no question, even though the word king is not mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9 in our text this morning, it's very obvious that Isaiah is prophesying about a king. In verse 6, he says the government is on his shoulders. In verse 7, it says he's sitting on a throne and ruling over a kingdom. So whoever this person is in Isaiah 9, he is a king. And what is a king? Really simply, he's somebody who's, who rules over the people of God. That's point one. And that is, I think, the shortest sermon point I've ever had in the history of my preaching at Pocosin Baptist Church. Don't get used to it. <laughs> point number two. Question number two. How is Jesus the ultimate king? How is Jesus the ultimate king? There are many reasons, many answers I could give to that question. I just want to show you three, three reasons from our text why Jesus is the ultimate king. Number one, Jesus' victory is final. Jesus' victory is final. I want you to think about all the kings of history. One of the things that's true of every king is that every king has battles to fight, right? So, so whether it's uh, Charlemagne or Alexander the Great or King David or Caesar or Napoleon or Churchill or a great American president, all these king-like rulers had enemies and battles, right? And many of them are known for their great victories. And yet, none of them, none of those kings won their final battle, final battle against death. You could say, in a sense, Every one of those kings, and we could list hundreds more of great kings throughout history, great rulers throughout history, every single one of them, in a sense, died a loser because they died. 
right? All except one king. There is one king who wins a final victory. When Isaiah prophesies about the joy and light coming for God's people, he predicts a coming king who will win a final victory. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden. Now, his there is not talking about the king. It's talking about the people of God. So the yoke of the burden on the people of God and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So God's people are currently, they're, they're carrying this heavy yoke. They're being oppressed by enemies. They're under bondage, right? And God says, there's going to come liberation, freedom from that yoke, just like the day of Midian. You know what that day was? If you remember the story of the judge, Gideon, Lord willing, we'll be walking through the book of Judges uh, next spring. The story of Gideon fought this great battle against the Midianites. Just like on that day when a great victory was won for the people of God, there is going to be a great victory won by this coming king. And yet, this coming king will win a final victory. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What's Isaiah saying? Every single weapon of war used against the people of God will one day be destroyed. There is coming a day where every enemy will be vanquished forever. Isaiah prophesies it this way in Isaiah chapter 2, referring to the same king. He says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There's coming a day where there will be no more weapons and no more war and no more enemies because the king will win a final victory. Now, even if you don't believe that's true, your heart longs for that to be true. You want it to be true. It is true because the king has come. Now, you might hear all that, and you say, how can these prophecies, how can they be referring to Jesus? Because last time I checked, Jesus already came, and there's still war. There's still weapons. We don't really have to dig deep into your newspapers. You guys know what a newspaper is? You don't even have to dig, you don't have to scroll down on your news website. That one's better. You don't have to scroll down very far to know that war still exists. That people still fight and kill each other. You say, well, how in the world can this be talking about Jesus when we still live in this world that's filled with death and destruction and evil? Because Jesus will put all those enemies to death because he has already defeated our greatest enemy. Jesus has defeated our greatest enemies, which are Satan, sin, and death. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus decisively defeated those enemies at the cross. 
Remember the passage that our brother Jim Lewis read earlier after his prayer of confession from Colossians 2, 13 and 14? Listen to verse 15. The passage is talking about the cross. Listen to what verse 15 says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At the cross, Jesus defeated our greatest enemies. Like a glorious master victorious king. He defeated them. So now, Satan has no more power over you, Christian. Your guilt, your sin guilt has been dealt with. Death will not be the end for you because of Jesus. And yet, if you're honest, if you're honest, you probably wish that Jesus would destroy some other enemies in your life too. Right? Thank you, Jesus, for defeating Satan, sin, and death. Can you defeat cancer for me? Can you defeat unemployment? Can you defeat my chronic pain and sickness? Can you, can you put to death the enemies of relational conflict that, that, that clutter my life? If Jesus has defeated our greatest enemies, why is life still so hard? Consider the story of a man named Jeremy Sutcliffe in Corpus Christi, Texas. A few years ago, Jeremy was mowing the lawn. His wife was working in the flower bed, and he's cutting the grass, and he hears a blood-curdling scream. He turns over, and he sees his wife staring in the eyes of a rattlesnake. And so he abandons his lawnmower, He runs towards his wife. He grabs a shovel on his way. And in one move, he smashes that snake and chops off his head. Okay? Rattlesnake, dead. Ten minutes later, ten minutes later, Jeremy Sutcliffe leans over to pick up the head of that snake. Not knowing, perhaps, that... Because of the way that God designed a snake, the nervous system is still active long after they're dead. And a snake can still, even a decapitated snake, can still bite after it's dead. And its venom can still kill you. He reaches down 10 minutes after death, grabs this snake head, and the snake bites onto his hand, grabs onto it for 30 seconds. He had to be life-flighted to a hospital. He was in a four-day medically-induced coma. It required 28 doses of anti-venom just to save his life. And a year later, he was still recovering. What's the lesson? Dead snakes are still deadly. If you know your Bible, you know that in Genesis 3, after our first parents sinned against God, God looked at that snake, Satan, and he said, there is coming a day when the seed of the woman will crush your head. That happened on the cross. And yet, decapitated Satan is still deadly. And he still is roaring, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Why is life still hard? Because even though the victory has been won, it is not yet fully consummated until the king returns. But Jesus' victory is final. It's final. Second reason why Jesus is the ultimate victory is because his character is flawless. Verse 6, Isaiah highlights the flawless character of King Jesus. Uh, First, he is perfectly sympathetic. 
For unto us a child is born. For to us a son is given. This is the truth we celebrate every Christmas. That the eternal son of God entered this world as a human baby. Like we saw last Sunday, Jesus can sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses, yet without sin. He's perfectly sympathetic. You'll never find another king like that. Any king in all human history has a really hard time sympathizing with his people. They just do. It's royalty for them. It's luxury for them, but not Jesus. Jesus can sympathize with you. Second reason why his character is flawless, Jesus is absolutely sovereign. Look at verse six. The government shall be upon his shoulders. You ever watched American presidents, how much they age after one term in office? Now, some of them already looked old before they started, but that's a different story. Most of the time, you look at a president when he starts and when he finishes, especially a younger president, JFK, Barack Obama, they look way older when they're done than when they started. Why? There's something about the, the weight of leadership. You, you got all that weight on your shoulders. It ages you fast. You just go back to what I looked like seven years ago before I came here. I had a lot less gray hair than I do now. Jesus doesn't even break a sweat when he rules. The government is on his shoulders, and it's not just one government. It's not just one church. It's not just one country. It's not just one term. It's every country, every people, every church forever. He is absolutely sovereign. If Jesus can handle the weight of the world, Christian, he can carry your burdens. Isn't that good news? Jesus' character is flawless because he is almighty God. Verse 6, he says, he shall be called mighty God. Many people are willing to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But they refuse to believe that Jesus is God. And yet the, the clear testimony throughout the scriptures is that Jesus is God. Either Jesus is a liar who we dare not trust, a lunatic who we should not trust, or he is Lord, and we must trust him. He's Almighty God. His character is flawless because he is eternally tender. Isaiah 9, verse 6 also says, he shall be called everlasting father. And that one's a little puzzling if you're a Christian because you know that Christians believe that God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So if Jesus is the Son of God, why does Isaiah call him Father? Isaiah isn't telling us about Jesus' role in the Trinity. He's telling us about Jesus' character. Uh, Sam Storm's a pastor puts it, in Omaha puts it like this. He says, the, the word Father is a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. What does the Father do? What image is evoked by the word? I suggest he has in mind the tenderness and sensitivity of a compassionate and affectionate father. It is the security and love he provides as well as protection and provision. Jesus, therefore, is fatherly, father-like in his treatment of us. For those of you that have had the wonderful reward of a good and tender earthly father, that's the way Jesus cares for his people with tenderness. He's eternally tender. You will never find another king 
with the tenderness of Jesus. He's also, he has flawless character because he brings unshakable peace. Verse six says he is the prince of peace. Many kings and rulers throughout the world have tried to bring peace, but but none of them can bring peace that lasts. Only Jesus can. He's the ultimate king because of his flawless character. And number three, because his reign is forever. His reign is forever. Beginning with King Saul, there were 42 kings in Israel. Most of them were awful kings. Occasionally, God would send a good king, but all the good kings eventually died. I guess it's fair to say that all good kings come to an end. That was a little pun for you. Merry Christmas. Except for one. All good kings come to an end, except for one. His name is Jesus. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The only way to improve on the things that we've already said about Jesus is to say that he'll do all those things and be all those things forever. Forever. You won't have to deal with some sort of transfer of power when Jesus has to get off the throne. Jesus' kingdom will be marked by justice and righteousness forevermore, verse 7 says. But I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. What does that mean? For eternity, Jesus' kingdom keeps getting better and better and better. Years ago, Holly and I watched a television show that presented um, some sort of a depiction of the afterlife. And finally, these, these characters, after several seasons, they get to the afterlife, and they're there, and it's, it's relaxing and wonderful, and everything's great. And then finally, they get bored with it. Because no matter how great perfect can be, eventually it gets boring. And so they, they vote at the end, and the show ends with them choosing to be extinguished. Because just not existing is better than just perpetual sameness. And I thought about that, and I thought, man, some of us are terrified of heaven because we just think it's perpetual sameness. Same thing every single day, like eternal Groundhog Day. Maybe nothing bad happens, but it's the same thing every single day. But Isaiah 9 tells us, no, it's increasing forever in peace, in in his government, in, in the joy of his kingdom. It will get better every single day. You say, how can it get better if it's already perfect? I don't know, but it does. I don't know of anybody that puts it better than C.S. Lewis at the very end of his final book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. He says this, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. It's better than you can even imagine. And that's what awaits you if you belong to King Jesus. His rule is forever. 
What difference should this make? What difference should this make if this is true? It's the third question we want to answer this morning. Uh, C.S. Lewis once famously said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If Jesus is king, then he is infinitely important. And it's infinitely important that we understand that and get that right and respond rightly to him as king. Let me give you, let me suggest three simple responses to King Jesus. Number one, because he is the king of kings, if you really believe that, we should submit to him. Submit to the king. Jesus began his ministry by saying in Mark chapter one, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The, the first step to submitting to King Jesus is to turn from your sins and trust in him. The Bible calls this repentance and faith. Here's the, the, the central message of the Bible. You want to know what the Bible is about? It's primarily about one thing. What God has done to rescue his wandering, sinful people. That's what the Bible's about. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God and sinned, to the very end, when the king returns, the whole story of the Bible is what God has done to rescue his people. And do you know what he did? He sent his son to this earth as an embryo, the tiniest human being imaginable, to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death, and to rise from death so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. That's the glorious good news. Here's my question for you, friend. Have you trusted in that good news? If you haven't, you can today. You can talk to the person that brought you Somebody sitting near you. You can talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to turn from your sins and trust in this Jesus. One more thought on this point. There's an Anglican pastor named J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool years ago, who wrote this. I want you to listen to this. It's not on the screen. I want you to just listen to this. He says this, This Christmas may possibly be your last who can tell, but you may never live to see another December come round? Who can tell, but your place may be empty when the family party next Christmas is gathered together? Do not, I entreat you, put off my question or turn away from it. It can do you no harm to look at it and consider it. What do you think of Christ? Begin, I beseech you this day to have right thoughts of Christ if you never had them before. Let the time past suffice you to have lived without real and heartfelt religion. Let this present Christmas be a starting point in your soul's history. Awake to see the value of your soul and the immense importance of being saved. Break off sharp from sin and the world. Get down your Bible and begin to read it. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer and beseech him to save your soul. Rest not, rest not till you have trustful, loving, experimental, hopeful thoughts of Christ. Mark my words, if you will only take the advice I have now given you, you will never repent it. 
Your life and future will be happier. Your heart will be lighter. Your Christmas gatherings will be more joyful. Nothing makes Christmas meetings so happy as to feel that we are all traveling on towards an eternal gathering in heaven. Reader, I say for the last time, if you would have a happy Christmas, have right thoughts about Christ, end quote. Dear friend, I wonder if you'll take J.C. Ryle's challenge and you'll think for just a bit on what if this might be your last Christmas. It really won't harm you to do that. You might think that's a pretty morbid, depressing Christmas thought. It won't harm you to think on that for a bit. And it might do you great good to think if this were to be my last Christmas, how should my life look different over however many more months, weeks, or days the Lord would give me? If you're here in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, the best thing that you could ever do not, not just at Christmas time, but at any time, is the trust in this Jesus. And to we who are his people, the best thing that we can do is to examine our lives and say, where am I holding back from submitting to King Jesus? And how might I grow in my submission this year? That's the first response. The second response is this, follow the king. Follow the king. Now, before I explain this, let me, let me stress this. I, I remind you this often, but you, you cannot follow Jesus as an example until you first receive him as a gift. So this is for those of you that are Christians. You have submitted to King Jesus. What would it look like for you to follow him? If you are a Christian, and one of the things I've been trying to show you through this series on Jesus as prophet, priest, and king is that we follow Jesus when we function as little prophets, priests, and kings. Uh, this is seen, I think, most clearly in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, Peter writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, but we function as little prophets when we proclaim his excellencies. Jesus is the ultimate priest, but we function as little priests when we sacrifice to help each other grow. Jesus is the ultimate king, and we're called to function as little kings and queens too, following in his footsteps. You say, what does that mean? Well, two things that kings do. Kings make war, and we need to be making war against our sin. We need to fight, be fighting our sin. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So as we're on the cusp of a new year, Christians, let me ask you, what are the sins that you aim to put to death this year? What are the sins that, that, that have been digging their claws deeper into your soul this year? And how might you labor to put them to death? Not in your own strength, but in the strength of King Jesus, who has given you power and authority to put that thing to death by his spirit. The second thing that kings do is kings rule well. Kings rule well. So whatever you're doing, whether your job is a stay-at-home mom and you're caring for little ones, 
or you're working at the shipyard, or you're typing at a computer all day, or you're cutting grass, whatever your job is, doing that well for the fame and glory of King Jesus, when you do that well, not lackadaisically, you know, not just kind of mumbling and floating along, but pouring your heart and soul into it for his glory, you are ruling well in your dominion for King Jesus. It honors him. Honors him. So we respond to King Jesus by following King Jesus. And finally, this isn't in the slides, but a third response is to celebrate the king. I'm honestly kind of ashamed about this. I didn't think about this till this morning. I was going for a morning run, and um, just to be honest, um, my, my soul was kind of blah this morning, and I listened to a friend preaching on Psalm 98, and his, his whole sermon was about how we rejoice in the king. And I looked at Isaiah 9 and said, this is all about rejoicing in the king. Think about the songs that we sang this morning. Come and worship the newborn king. If I were to tell you, King Charles II was coming to visit Pocosin, would you go to see him? Now, he's not your king, right? And some of you are already like, I don't even like King Charles. If it was William, sure. Harry, sure. I don't care about that guy. He's too old or whatever. Sorry if you feel like you're old. Just, you just don't like King Charles. But a king, a glorious king with majesty and pomp and circumstance and wealth and fame is coming to your neighborhood. Would you want to see that king? Even if he's not your king. Just to say, I got to see him. I got to shake his hand. Would you want to see royalty? I think, even in a town like Pocosin, where we know we don't, we don't bow to any king, I think that many of us would say, I'd go see him. I'd go see that king. Perhaps we'd even be excited about it. Perhaps we'd even buy a t-shirt or a mug or get a picture, put it on our wall. Why is it that we get excited about kings that are so much smaller than the king of kings? What does it say about your heart and mine that it is so easy for us to sing, come and worship Christ the newborn king and mumble the words? Why is it and we could sing a song like Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, and we sing it like we're at a funeral. I'm not saying you did that. I'm just saying we do that, don't we? We do that. Why? Because our hearts are continually tempted to rejoice in kings that are smaller than Jesus. So what do we do? We say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Once again, help me to celebrate the king. When Isaiah prophesies about this king coming, he says in verse 3 that they are glad. There's joy like at harvest time. Gladness like dividing the spoil. Now, we don't divide the spoil today, but, but think of gladness like the kids dividing the spoil around the tree on Christmas morning. Do we have that sort of gladness when we think about the King of Kings? And if we don't, 
let me remind you, you were not saved, Christian, because Jesus thought you would be particularly good at this. He did not look into the future and say, man, I can just tell that guy, that gal, she's going to rejoice in me always. I'm going to save her. I'm going to save him. No. While we were, what? Enemies, Christ died for us. You will never, ever, ever find a king like Jesus. So after I pray, we're going to sing a song. You all know the tune. You might not know the words, but you know the tune. So here's my challenge. Immediate application. Let's sing it like the king is listening. Because he is. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for King Jesus. Thank you that he is infinitely glorious. That he is better than 10 trillion kings put together. He, he has all of their strengths and none of their weaknesses. He has all the beauty of a thousand thrones and a thousand suns and a thousand universes and none of the filth. He is infinitely glorious. Help us to submit to him. Help us to follow in his example and help us to celebrate him. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and sing? Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, i
our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Leave with this benediction. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.